Thank you, Jessica Moss. We're very spoiled to have Jessica play for us faithfully Sunday after Sunday after Sunday. I'm so grateful. Well, good morning, fishers of men. How is everybody this morning? Hunky dory. I like that. I was a little tired this morning just thinking about watching you guys row those canoes, paddle those canoes. It exhausted me. But we had a wonderful time yesterday. And I, as I was listening to Kevin's commentary on just there's so many things to be grateful for, so many things to rejoice about. I thought, how pleased God must have been yesterday. I know we had a good time, but God enjoys to watch his people have a good time. He created all of this for his good pleasure. And and we are to delight in him. And so I think God was very pleased with what took place yesterday as he maybe gazed down or his spirit was among us and watched us serve one another. Um, he took care of us. I'm not aware of any injuries. Now, there may have been some this morning when people woke up, but far as out on the pond, I didn't see any or playing any games. I wasn't aware, uh, but very, very grateful for God and for you and, and um, how you interacted yesterday and served and appreciate Jeff and Cookie and their vision for uh, spring. <clears throat> Gathering, there are many, many others that work so hard to put that together. And some uh, up-and-coming organizers and workers were utilized as well. So thanks to one and all for yesterday's wonderful time and challenging message. Um, I was encouraged by the message and reminded, um, he didn't say this, but you know how sometimes you're learning things that the preacher isn't saying as the preacher is speaking? Happens all the time, doesn't it? That's the Holy Spirit. But um, thinking about... The message from Rob about how Christ said, I will make you disciples. And that really is something that the power of God does. But if you think about the actual apostles, when they first hearkened to God's call, come and follow me. I mean, what were they like? What did they know about God? What what were their passions and their hearts cry and how good were they at understanding the gospel and evangelizing and loving one another? And after just approximately three years of time under Jesus's mentorship, look what they were when Jesus ascended to the Father. So just in three years, there's this transformation, powerful transformation that took place just by coming to Jesus. And that's what God is doing in us and through us. He's transforming us. And I know there's people here this morning that five years ago, you would have never dreamed that you would love God this much or that you would be in this kind of service with God. That's the power of God in, in us and among us. We get to witness these things and rejoice in these things. And even rejoice in the entertainment that took place as some racers on the pond capsized. No, not just once. But twice. That's true. Three to thrice. Thrice times you will deny me, Jesus said. No, three times. But um, it was just, it was a great time. Good food. I want some popcorn. I love popcorn. But we're not talking about popcorn right now. We're still in, 
we're in God's word. We're in the middle of a worship service for crying out loud. We um, we feasted yesterday, did we not? There was just a lot of good food. And what we want to do now is is feast, but not on the material things that God created. We want to feast on God. We want to enjoy God, hunger and thirst for God. And the psalmist, I think, will help us do that this morning as we turn our attention to Psalm 63. You know, the more I read the Psalms, the more I appreciate them. And in particularly David, because David, um, he thinks out loud. He relates to God and he, even the bad stuff, even his unfaithfulness and his sins, he just says it out loud and he wrestles with things and he, re, he rejoices over um, his friends and then struggles with his enemies and then wonders where God is sometimes. And then God can't get any closer than he is sometimes. And we get to hear all of these spiritual wrestling and struggling and daily sanctification in David. And it's such a blessing to hear him think out loud and for him to share his emotions and his joys and his thoughts. But in this psalm, we're going to find that David just cries out. He wants something so, so badly. He's hungering for it. He's thirsting for it. He absolutely has to have it. And that something is God. He just wants God. And I almost entitled the sermon Feasting on God because in essence that's what David wants to do. But I just think it's, it's, it's kind of a cry really more accurately to say he wants God more than anything. And so before we read our text, as we think about our lives, as we think about all the things that are going on in our lives, all the responsibilities, all the cares, what is it that we want most in life? Because there's a lot of distractions in the world that can pull us away. Are we most hungry? And there's legitimate things to hunger and thirst for. But are we most hungry for God this morning? Let's read Psalm 63 in its entirety. A Psalm of David when he was in the wilderness of Judah. O God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you as in a dry and weary land where there is no water. So I have looked upon you in the sanctuary beholding your power and glory because your steadfast love is better than life. My lips will praise you. So I will bless you as long as I live in your name. I will lift up your my hands. My soul will be satisfied as with fat and rich food and my mouth will praise you with joyful lips. When I remember you upon my bed and meditate on you in the watches of the night, for you have been my help. And in the shadow of your wings, I will sing for joy. My soul clings to you. Your right hand upholds me. But those who seek to destroy my life shall go down into the depths of the earth. They shall be given over to the power of the sword. They shall be a portion for jackals. But the king shall rejoice in God. All who swear by him shall exalt, for the mouths of liars will be stopped. It was nearly three years ago that I received a very distressing call about my then 90-year-old father. 
I received a call that he has been hospitalized. They weren't exactly sure what was wrong with him. Earlier that day, he was sitting on the couch and he had dozed off with his head back. That was very common for my dad at 90 years old. Sometimes he would just sit somewhere and fall asleep. But when my brother walked by him and tried to rouse him and called him by name to let him touch base with him, let him know what was going on and who was coming and who was going. He tried to rouse my dad and my dad just stayed in that position and he was completely unresponsive. It wasn't that he was just in a deep sleep. He was unresponsive. And so my brother rushed over to him and he he tried to rouse him and he couldn't rouse him and he checked for a pulse and he was His heart was beating, but he was unresponsive. And so they called an ambulance and he was in terrible shape. They weren't exactly sure what was wrong with him as they were rushing him off to the hospital. But his his body was shutting down. His organs, they as they ran all of these tests, they found that his brain wasn't working correctly, his kidneys were, were shutting down, his major organs were shutting down, and something was pointing to something very, very serious that was wrong. And then, after they ran more and more tests, they drew a conclusion. And all of those very life-threatening medical situations were the result of a very, very strange thing. Severe dehydration. All of that tragedy and near-death experience wasn't some remote disease that had visited him throughout the day. wasn't even old age. He just was not drinking enough water. And the body, apparently, has to have water. Not just so that our mouths will be quenched and, and uh, have you know, the lubrication we need and so we, we can be refreshed. But even our brains, we need a certain amount of fluid in our bodies and, and our organs. We don't even realize it, but as we sit here, they're crying out for certain fluids and liquids to be there so that they can function And dad, for whatever reason, he just over the days, apparently he wasn't drinking enough water, something so simple. And there he was near death experience. They weren't sure once the organs begin to shut down and even the brain, they weren't sure how much dad would rebound, how much he would regain the use of these things. Well, fortunately, he slowly bounced back. He was well enough to be transferred out of the hospital into a nursing facility where they worked with him very, very diligently. And uh, he was in this facility when I went to visit him a few days after this. Um, Yeah, he was undergoing a lot of therapy. And so he was cognitive and we were able to carry on a conversation, but it was obvious that there were things that still were not right with that. He kept his conversation very, very simple. 
I followed him. He was in the wheelchair and the therapist came. I think this time it was a speech therapist and uh, she wheeled him into a sunroom where they did the therapy. And I followed along and I stood behind the, uh, the wheelchair and she wheeled him up to this table. <laughs> Wasn't expecting that, but. She, uh, she wheeled him up to this table and before him, among other things, was a cardboard clock, you know, with the plastic hands that, that you as parents use to teach your kids how to tell time. And she puts it before him and she says, OK, now, Mr. Montagna, which hand is the hour hand? And, and he's sitting there and he, he points to the hour hand and which hand is the minute hand? And he takes a, a little while. Uh, and I have no idea what's going on in his head. I don't know what he's lost, but he points to the minute hand. And I'm thinking. And then she says, Mr. Montagna, now, could you move the hands and make this clock read three o'clock? And he just stared. And after about a minute of. Awkward silence, you know, sometimes he would put his hand on his forehead when he was thinking deeply and he started to touch the hands. He couldn't, he couldn't do it. And I'm standing behind him, I'm thinking, this can't be happening. I mean, this is a, this is a brilliant man here. Like, I, I've hardly ever seen dad stumped. With things. I mean, he's a Citadel guy. He's a Yale graduate, attended for a short time the famous Wharton Business School and decided he'd rather be married to my mom than stay there and get his degree. But he, he can't do simple things. And the reason he was not able to function to the capacity that he usually could, even at 90 degree, 90 years old, was because he deprived his body something that his body had to have. And that was just water. Well, by God's grace, Dad continued in the therapy and he, he, he uh, did all the little exercises they told him to do, including speech therapy and things and physical therapy. He was so weak. Another thing I witnessed while he was there and when he was in the wheelchair, he was so weak. One time the therapist asked, Mr. Montagna, can you just raise your right foot off the ground? And he looked down at his foot and his leg moved and it, he, he was so weak he could not literally move his foot an inch off the ground. But he was diligent and he did all the little weights and the exercises and took all the medicines and everything he was supposed to. And, and eventually he graduated from a wheelchair to a walker. And then he graduated from a walker to a cane. And then he did so well for a while there that he didn't even need a cane to walk. We're so proud of him. Now he is, unfortunately, 93. He's back to his cane. He's a little wobbly, but I think that's old age. But he never really has rebounded completely from that one event. I mean, hydration. Yesterday, Cookie was running around. We need a drink station. Stay hydrated. Stay hydrated. I don't know if you heard her say that, but she was saying it. Stay hydrated. Hydration is a real thing. You know, thirst can do funny things to us. 
And when we don't have what our bodies need, there are parts of our bodies physiologically that, yeah, they'll begin to shut down. They'll say, I, I can't do it anymore. I don't have what I need to do my job. And we can even get confused and make bad decisions and make harmful decisions, things that are not at all good for us. Well, in this psalm, as, as you have heard, David has to be satisfied. He, he just wants something so badly, and he metaphorically uses something we're very familiar with, and that is, I mean, you've been thirsty. And we use the, uh, the term, I'm dying of thirst. There's a little bit of truth to that, isn't it? I'm dying of thirst. I'm dying of hunger. You have hunger pains, and all you can think of is, Food And so David is very, very thirsty for something to hit the spot. And that something is just God. It's just the person of God, the presence of God, the being of God, the God that he knows. And of all the things that David certainly has experienced and maybe even possesses at this time in his life, they're not enough. They don't satisfy. They don't hit what he's craving. What David really wants is something that actually you cannot even get from anything in this material universe. It's a spiritual experience with the living God. It's that communion. It's that connection. And as much as God has blessed us with the things here that we can feel and touch and see are our souls also yearn for the spiritual things. And they're just as real. And they're just as necessary for us. And they can only come truly through God, our Creator. Who is Spirit. I was reach, uh, recently watching in one of those Amazon series. Always trying to find something worthwhile. But anyway, this, was, this particular episode had a teenage girl... And uh, she was raised very um, sheltered, but in this episode, she was in the city by herself, and she's walking down this very big, big city, uh, big city in Europe. And um, it's like many big cities are; it's very chaotic. I mean, all you have to do is walk down a big city. And this was just getting dark, so it's kind of nightlife. It's very chaotic. The, the music is loud. Things are noisy. You know, the, the transportation and cars and just people. And she's walking there and there are prostitutes on the street corners as she walks by. And she peers through a dark alley. And sometimes there might be homeless people. And other times there might be people doing drugs or somebody getting mugged. I mean, this is just different things and takes place in the city. And then she walks by and she hears... She's walking, continuing to walk in the city and she hears this different kind of noise and, it, and she veers in and it's this one of those beautiful old churches, beautiful architect with the high art ceilings and the artwork is everywhere, beautiful architecture. And, um, and they are having choir practice in this church. And so it sounds kind of like the boys choir, but there were others in there. And the acoustics, because of the way the church was designed, were incredible. And she just walks in there about halfway down the aisle. Of course, there's nobody in the pews. They're just practicing. And she just closes her eyes and leans her head back. And she just drinks in the peace. 
She drinks in the atmosphere and, and this presence that was created by these believers of God in here. And the producer did, this was not at all a Christian movie, but the producer did such a good job at showing there is a difference in the way things operate. And you have this out in the city. And you have this among God's people. And it's not perfect. But they were just lifting their voices to the Lord. And it was night and day. And that was the whole thing you walked away from was like, wow, that was like night and day. Exactly. There are things that are in this world that we cannot obtain or possess or get in our grip because they only come from God. And you have to seek God. Like this, in order to feed your spirit and your soul what it needs. We're spiritual beings. I would argue that we innately crave these things because we're spiritual beings. There's a, there's a primitive need there. There's something in us and we can suppress God, Romans says. We can suppress it. We can deny it. The urgings and the promptings that the Spirit is, is uh, initiating throughout the globe. Drawing people to God. But it's there. And so we have a, a yearning for the transcendent. That's something that's beyond this world. The material world. It's bigger than we are. It's above us. It's transcendent. We've had the privilege of watching something I know in my lifetime and in your lifetime. And actually, I think it's kind of still happening, but you don't hear as much about it. <clears throat> and that something is a, a hunger for spiritual things. And I know that we, we say and we mourn over the fact, well, we live in a post-Christian culture and so forth. And that's true. But there is a yearning for the transcendent, a yearning for spiritual things. Now, over the last several hundred years, um, you know, the Enlightenment age and so forth, science and technology has swept into fill voids. It has become, say, the new paradigm shift. It has become the new worldview. And it has become very, very dependable, presented to us as now the answer in the sense that now that we know things scientifically and we can test them out and observe them, we don't need faith. We don't need this blind faith. We don't need to just believe in things. Everybody okay? All right. If we can stop and pray if we need to. Okay. So, we, so science has um, replaced it. You know, the, the storms, they're not the wrath of God. That's just a scientific process. And we can track nature and, 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 and technology can teach us so many things. So we don't have to look to God now for simple thing as food on our plate. Look to science. We're, we're growing more crops. Things are getting bigger. I don't know about tastier, but bigger. Uh, more. The quantity is tremendous there. And so the need for the supernatural, the answer is in the natural. Um, now we know about genetics and we know that things happen because of little synapses and impulses. It's not anything supernatural. And so we have kind of been taught to look to uh, a closed world. 
And the things and the supernatural things and the spiritual things have been suppressed. But then what happened as a result of hundreds of years of that, this kind of this underlying thing is that it was suppressed. But as a result of people not being turned to the supernatural as an outlet for a need for transcendence was that it's kind of pushing against the worldview of naturalism. There's like this underlying pressure that is building because there's this need for people to be spiritual. But in a sense, they're not really allowed to be spiritual anymore. And then what happened is that spirituality just starts popping up all over the place. And it's been um, likened to like the geyser at the uh, Old Faithful at, at the Yellowstone National Park, where it's a great force of water that spews And if you somehow could suppress it, it's under such pressure. Sooner or later, it's coming out again. It's either going to blow through you or it's going to pop up through another weak spot in the ground. But it's coming out. And spirituality just came out and burst back onto the scene. We saw it mostly through kind of like first New Age. Remember New Age things that came? Meditation and yoga. Uh, And then in the 60s, some people used drugs to help themselves connect with the spiritual things out there. God, psychedelic drugs. And then and then it was just like the occult was real popular. Witches were real popular. Vampires. You have all these series. You have all these books, all of these things. But what it is, it is a cry. Now, unfortunately, when the pressure spewed out, it didn't spew it. Everybody didn't spew into the church, into the truth. It just was everywhere. It's wild. It's still happening. People are hungry for spiritual things. And you can look at anything on TV, movies and shows And now there are all kinds of spiritual nuances there. They're just, unfortunately, not always Christian. Rarely Christian. But people are hungry. And the prediction was this. The prediction was, well, now that we have science and we have technology, they won't need the placebo of God and faith. Because that's just a crutch for a primitive weakness and the helplessness that humans have. We've overcome that with science. It didn't work. Now, unfortunately, at this time in the 19th century, um, the mainline churches were more in agreement with the liberal-minded naturalists than sticking with what Scripture taught. And so when this great spiritual thirst burst forth, They weren't there with a glass of Jesus to quench your thirst. They had already determined, well, you know, the Bible's not really a supernatural book. The word of God, it's full of wonderful stories that can be used to teach morals, but there's no power in it. And those supernatural miracles, that didn't really happen. And so the, the truth was watered down so much that anybody that would seek spiritual things uh, in, in that way, Weren't satisfied either, unfortunately. So there's a surge in the metaphysical and the supernatural. Alvin Toffler in his book, Future Shock in 1971, said, Probably since 1945, since the end of World War II, there have been at least a thousand new religions, not churches, new religions started in the United States. The Economist, which is a very, very well-known, respected British weekly in 1980, ran an article in which it said in Britain alone, from the end of World War II, there had been at least 800 new religions started. 
and the article, it said there's an enormous groping for new forms of spiritual experience. The current wave of new religions results from the repression of transcendence in modern consciousness. You're not allowed to think along those terms because we have the answers with science. These are not Christian. These are not theologians deducing and observing what's happening among them. They're just people with common sense using logic. And they're, they're, they're saying, wow, look what happened. He tried to repress the spiritual need for transcendence in humanity. And it just pops up everywhere after a while. You can't hold it back. Where are we? Who do we turn to? What, what do we hunger for? It's there. It's underlying. You ever just like really have this urge to connect with God? Not just do Christian things, but just connect. God, I just want to connect with you. I need this isn't a psalm that is saying, God, are you there? Do you exist? We, we go through that, too. This is a psalm that says, God, you are there. You are real. And I just need to connect with you. More than anything that this world has to offer. It's a hunger. We were created by him. We were created for him. And so our hearts need him. And that's what we want to do as we worship the Lord. New Covenant Fellowship. We want to hunger for God. We want to feast for God and use all these opportunities for prayer and for worship. And for teaching and preaching of God's word to know him more, to see how majestic he is, to see who he is. And our hearts to be moved. John Piper says worship is an inward feeling and an outward action that reflects the worth of God. And the inward feeling is the essence for Jesus said, this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me. The worship in vain it's empty. It's nothing. It's when the heart is unmoved. That's the opposite of where David is. David's heart is moved. He is passionate. He's burning for God. He already knows God. He wants more of God. So what, what might be the, the cause of our hearts when they're not moved, when they're not hungry, when they're not thirsty? There's different theories about that. What do you do with somebody that doesn't want anything with God or is in this slump? Well, some people would say, well, you're just not passionate enough or you're not doing enough. Uh, in, in your mind, God's just not worthy of your time and effort. He's not worthy of you just bringing your emotions in line with what's really happening in the heavens right now. It's a world filled with the worship of God. And we're just too lazy or we're just not interested in these kind of things. And so we don't delight in God and we don't really desire him. And that's a part of it. Just not passionate worshipers refuse to be unmoved, refuse to be transformed. Then there's this other side that comes and says, wait a minute, it's not because we, we don't want to do anything. It's because actually we are wholeheartedly worshiping something else. We're still putting our time and energy out there. It's just into something else. And so they would say, yeah, there's worship still taking place. It's just a deluded worship. 
It's not that we're not seeking pleasure. It's not that we don't want things desperately or that we're not hungering for things. It's that we're settling for things that are very, very subpar. Jeremiah, the prophet in chapter two, puts it like this, 11 through 13. Has a nation changed its gods, even though they are no gods? But my people have changed their glory for that which was does not profit. Be appalled, O heavens, at this. Be shocked and be utterly desolate, declares the Lord. For my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and hewed out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that can hold no water. You see what Jeremiah prophesies is that you, you, you have in God this living, gushing, fresh spring water. And then you have the little mud puddle that you have hewn out for yourself. And you left the, the gushing, life-giving water for your little pitiful life. Your little drinks. So it's not that they, the, the soul doesn't long to be satisfied. It's that we're too content to drink toilet water. In essence. To drink toilet water instead of to drink from God's well. C.S. Lewis, in his 1968 sermon, The Weight of Glory, you were what, 14? Corky was about 14 when C.S. wrote this. It's a long quote. Hang with me, but you'll, you'll see where he's coming from. If you ask 20 good men, this is in 68. If you ask 20 good men today what they thought the highest of the virtues, 19 of them would reply, unselfishness. But if you asked almost any of the great Christians of old, they would have replied, love. You see what's happened. A negative term has been substituted for a positive. The negative ideal of unselfishness carries with it the suggestion, not primarily of securing good things for others, but of going without them ourselves. As if abstinence and not their happiness was the important point. I do not think this is the Christian view. The New Testament has lots to say about self-denial, but not about self-denial as an end in and of itself. We're told to deny ourselves, to take up our crosses in order that we may follow Christ. And nearly every description of what we shall ultimately find, if we do so, contains an appeal to desire. So he, he goes on and on and talks about the rewards that are mentioned in the Gospels and how good God is. And he, would see, he says it would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. The, the, the desires are there, but we're settling way too, way beneath what God actually offers. And when we seek him, there are there are joys and pleasures to life in our own souls that we don't know because we have not been there with God. That he desires to bless us with. So he C.S. Lewis says we're half hearted creatures Fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. We are too easily pleased. Piper cuts the chase and says this. Our desire for happiness is too weak. 
We have settled for a home, a family, a few friends, a job, a TV, a microwave, an Apple product, an occasional night out, a yearly vacation. We have accustomed ourselves to such small, unexciting, short-lived, inadequate pleasures that our capacity for joy has shriveled and therefore our worship has shriveled. So when we place we, we, we replace God with with subpar things and substitutes, how do we expect our view of God to stay exalted when we don't spend time with him, communing with him, reading his revelation? This is what he says to us and communing with his people, the body of Christ, the very body of God here on earth to manifest himself, to make seen one of the. One of our articles in our doctrinal statement is that one of the purposes of the church is to make seen the invisible God. And when we avail ourselves to these wonderful, beautiful gifts of God, then he becomes bigger in our eyes because we're seeing him for who he really is. David says in verse one, oh, God, you are my God. I like that. Because it's a term of possession. And I might say that's my truck, which means I primarily drive it. But I paid for it. I got to pay the insurance on it. It's, it's mine. But it, we also might say, well, that's my son or that's my daughter. My daughter gave. My daughter is going to cook me a thick steak for Father's Day. My daughter. So it's possession. We, we birth her, but we might also it also means relationship. There. So when the kids when so, yesterday was all this screaming during the canoe race. And and so when the kids said, who's doing all that yelling? That's my mom up on the hill screaming. What's that? That doesn't mean, oh, I own her. She's mine. I bought her. No, it's relationship. And that's what that's what David is saying here. And there's a lot of screaming mothers yesterday uh, rooting for their kids. Uh, but it's relationships. See, it's like I can always count on you for these kind of things. That's what David's saying. God, you're my God. I can go to you and only you for these transcendent things. And then in verse three, he says, because your steadfast love is better than life. My lips will praise you. You know what that steadfast word is? It's the word for covenants. It's hesed. Oh, man, we are in this relationship where we've you have pledged yourself to me and you're very reliable because of that. Like I can just count on you all the time. David's drawing from these biblical terms and these covenant terms, and he expects things to happen when he comes to this God that he's in relationship do we come like we know what's going to happen, right? When we come to church and on communion Sundays, we know the routine. We do it a little differently and we come and and we open up with us one song and then the offering and introduction and so forth. And you know that very soon we're going to worship God in, in praise and then come to the table. What what are we anticipating to happen as we meet with the living God this morning? Are we just going to say, OK, we did church again. Great. Or are we going to connect? I mean, God is here and he wants to reveal himself in our hearts and our minds. He wants to do what needs to take place. Hydrate us spiritually so that everything is functioning as it should. To bring him glory. 
And John Piper says, you know, we, we are created to glorify God and enjoy him forever. But not just that, we are created to glorify God by enjoying him forever. And God is a God that can be enjoyed as he satisfies our longings and our thirsts. Let me close with a, a quote that kind of... I think maybe wraps everything up as we started out with this whole idea that we don't need the supernatural and we don't crave spiritual things. All we need is the material world, a closed world. Charles Darwin, of all people, wrote this in his autobiography to his kids. And he expressed one regret. Up to the age of 30 or beyond it, poetry of many kinds gave me great pleasure. Formerly, pictures gave me considerable pleasure. Music, very, very delightful. But now, for many years, I cannot endure to read a line of poetry. I've also almost lost any taste for pictures or music. I retain some taste for fine scenery, but it does not cause me the exquisite delight it formerly did. My mind seems to have become a kind of machine for grinding general laws out of large collections of facts. See, he, he turned his mind away from the transcendent and said, no, that's not there. Actually, I can explain everything through a natural means. And his world got way too small. And the joys of the scenery and the pleasures and the arts and the crafts and the things that God blesses his people with were no longer accessible to him. He had become closed in the machine that, in a sense, he used to explain the world and its existence. So we don't want to lose our childlike wonder. We want to engage our imagination and our senses as we worship the Lord, as we sing every word of praise, as we stand in line and then we partake of holy communion under the eyes in the canopy of heaven with our living God. Let's want God together. May God bless the preaching of his word. Let's praise him this morning.